This is episode 48 of the Soul of Sensitivity podcast. I'm your host, Anna Holden, the resident intuitive healer and witch at SensitivityUncensored.com. Each new and full moon, I bring you the voices of sensitive, empathic, and creative pioneers starting conversations to lift up the voices of sensitive souls who have a piece of the solution to help all of us evolve out of the limiting patriarchal structures that bind us and start to create a new world that values us all. This is the Soul of Sensitivity. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Soul of Sensitivity podcast. I am happy to be back. And, you know, to be honest, I am just taking the summer at the pace at which it comes at me. So thank you for still being here and listening to this podcast, even though I'm not really on schedule so much anymore. Um, And thank you to all of my patrons out there who are helping support my time in making this podcast. Thank you, all of you who consume my free work and my paid work. I'm just so happy that my work is going somewhere. So I appreciate you continuing to consume the the products, the information that I put out there. You can find free information on my website, sensitivityuncensored.com, and you can get more free information and free check-ins and more access to me over at the Refuge for Sacred Rebellion, which is my free membership group on Mighty Networks. Yay for all of that. Um, So what has been happening in, in the land of Sensitivity Uncensored? You know, not a lot (laughs) this summer, um, other than um, just kind of business as usual, meaning that um, I'm going about um, with clients, sound healings, um, lots of awesome transformational experiences happening in my one-on-one work, and I've still been taking a break from teaching, which has been a welcome break, although I'm starting to get itching, you know, I'm starting to itch to come back into teaching. Um, And so even though I say not much is happening, there have been a lot of brainstorming sessions around what's coming next, what's going to happen this fall, what's going to happen while I'm on maternity leave over the winter, and how we're all coming back together. And so that isn't, it's not formally announced yet, but I'll, uh, allow for a sneak peek here. I'm going to be teaching a little this fall. So keep your eyes peeled for some back to school specials starting at the end of September into October. I'm going to be teaching at least one class, but really I have um, kind of a series of classes that I want to put together in a series where you can take it as a series or not. That's kind of like introduction to energy magic that I think is going to be really fun. And my hope is that it will whet your appetite for energy healing, energy healing 101, um, uh, um, you know, bringing out the healer in you, which is what I'll be teaching when I come back from maternity leave next spring. So if you've been interested in energy healing and you want to take your energy healing abilities to the next step and to start to turn on. We don't focus on clairvoyance, but we start to turn on our clairvoyance. That's going to be coming up in the spring. I have um, reworked my material to include uh, not just the basics of energy healing, but to include 
a whole section on, you know, the ethics of healing, how to be, you know, a non-creepy healer, how to be ethically sound, how to be trauma-informed, how to work pe- work with people in a really respectful way. Because as much as I thought that we would all kind of understand how to do that, the reality is that we don't. And so I've included a, a big section on that in in how to be a really respectful, non-spiritually bypassing, feet in the ground type of energy healer. And so if you have been interested in energy healing, but you're not like the most wooist of the woo, this is a great energy healing program and really all my programs because I have my feet planted on the ground, I have a science background, yet I'm teaching some ethereal concepts. And so when you learn from me, that's what you're getting. Um, And I do my best to have a social justice lens as well. I'm still working every day with my own biases, but my goal is to have a, a firmly rooted social justice lens. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And if you're not already, jump on my newsletter. Um, You can get on there at sensitivityuncensored.com. That's going to alert you to when my courses will launch. Or join me, follow me over at Instagram, sensitivity underscore uncensored um, is my handle over on Instagram. I like to be there more than I like to be on Facebook. So that's where those are the two places you'll hear about it first and also the refuge. In personal news, what is going on? You know, a lot of nesting has been going on. So in, in case you, you're new, uh, newly listening, I am currently, well, tomorrow morning, I will be 20 weeks pregnant. So I am 19 weeks and six days pregnant today. And I have never experienced such a strong nesting urge as I have with this pregnancy. With my first pregnancy, there was a little nesting that happened, you know, I got the nursery going and blah, blah, blah. This has been like jam making, redo the laundry room, working with the systems of the household that aren't working very well and getting everything ironed out before this baby number two comes along. Um, And so if you have been following me on Instagram, you'll see that I've taken quite a hiatus um, to just, I just really decided to surrender to what my system was asking me to do and the stressors that were keeping me distracted from doing really good work. And so I kind of switched gears in the last couple of weeks and I've just gone into full on nesting mode, literally repainted, reorganized my laundry room because laundry was one of those things that was driving me nuts. We had a terrible system. And so I created a very mama-like den in my laundry room where I might actually want to hang out and fold laundry. The jury's still out. I've only done that one time in there so far, but um, the room is beautiful. I've uh, been making lots of jam with the um, the fruit from my brother-in-law and parents-in-law's um, trees. And I know this sounds a little weird, but already preparing for uh, the holiday season, giving out solstice gifts to the neighbors because I'm going to be super pregnant or with a baby right at that time. So making jam to prepare for the neighbors and for friends and um, starting to really look ahead to that time when baby comes and my life gets turned upside down yet again. 
you know, Scorpio, as a Scorpio, I'm used to that, but I like to prepare as much as possible. So that's kind of what's been going on in, in personal news. I had my, for those of you who are parents, um, you may remember the 20 week ultrasound, which is also known as the anatomy scan. So it's the big ultrasound you get right in the middle of your pregnancy and they go in and measure everything. They measure limbs and head size and they you know, count the vertebra and they you know, look for the stomach and the kidneys and the heart and the arteries and they, they're really looking for everything to make sure there are no abnormalities. And it was mostly positive today. My little boy, it is very much a boy, he showed us that right away, and um, very active in there, which I've noticed and that's been really comforting to me, um, and also ginormous. He's in the 94th percentile right now. It's funny, I have this little app that tells me he should be like, you know, the size of a mango, but he's hanging out at like the size of a pineapple. So yay for me. Um, But you know, it's all relative. He's 94th percentile now. We'll see if he continues at that rate. Um, Found out that I have a, what's called a singular umbilical... Wait, I'm going to get that wrong. Basically, the umbilical cord usually has two arteries and one vein. And mine, ours, I guess, has one artery and one vein. 75% of the time, it's not cause for concern. My doctor was not worried at all based on all of my other tests, but I do have to have a follow-up ultrasound to just kind of make sure baby is like growing okay, which at this point, I'm kind of not worried about that. <laughs> but it's always hard, even when, like, my doctor didn't even sit me down. She didn't even sit down to deliver this information. She was just like, oh, come back in. We didn't get a couple of images because he was being stingy on his position, which is totally fine. Um, so I'm going to be back in in a month or so to check for abnormalities. So, yeah. And the reason I'm sharing such personal information is because that's partly what I do. <laughs> Um, and, and partly it allows us, um, well, it allows me and allows us to come together as a community. And when I can put my concerns and my worries out there, then it helps to normalize them, I think. So just to let you know, I have that little worry on my mind. I'm trying not to worry. I'm going to be um, distracting myself with my new electric bike. You guys. I know I should not say guys, but you guys. I got what's called the Rad Power Wagon. So there's an electric assist bike company in Seattle called Rad, Rad Power Bikes. And they make this um, electric assist bike called the Rad Wagon. And basically it is like a car replacement bike. It's got this huge, it's a long, it's a really long frame. And it's got this um, awesome um, kind of rear cargo area where I can put two kid seats on the back. Um, Right now I've got one and some panniers so I can take my kid and go grocery shopping and haul all of those groceries home um, with only breaking like a tiny sweat. So I really loved that. I just got it this week but I have really loved it because as I've gotten bigger it's been more difficult for me to get out of my mountain bike um, which is my first love and so using this bike as kind of a car replacement to run errands, drop my kids different, drop my child, sorry, my one child right now, (laughs) different places, um, take trips to the library. It's just been really, really joyful for me. That's one of the things that's keeping me in good spirits. 
Okay. So what are we going to be talking about today? So today I'm interviewing Eliza Parker of ConsciousBaby.com. And I want to be clear that this, although we're focusing on babies and infants and a bit of parenting, this is not, I really don't think this conversation just applies to to parents. And that's why I had it on the podcast, because this is not a parenting podcast. But so much of this information is applicable to HSPs, to those of us who still have behaviors or um, struggle with emotional triggers, it provides so much, uh, it, it provides an additional wing of insight. And it really piggybacks well with what I was talking about with Suki Baxter in the last two episodes. Eliza and I really kind of um, continue the conversation on self-regulation, emotional regulation, um, emotional intelligence, and dealing with emotional triggers. I'm just going to name that my neighbor decided that it was a good time to go out with a lawnmower. So if you can hear that, I apologize. Um, And so Eliza has this fantastic focus on baby sleep, because when you're a parent, one of the things that happens is that you lose a lot of sleep and you get hyper focused on how much sleep your child is getting. (laughs) Or at least that's what happened for me. And so she focuses on sleep, but what we find here is that her, you know, beliefs is that that sleep is really tied to everything else. It's tied to self-regulation. It's tied to stimulation. And particularly for highly sensitive children, sleep can be challenging because of these connections. And so this can still apply to us adults and Um, When we kind of look at children from this way, from this whole person way, we, you know, provide them with the, um, what's the word that I'm looking for, with the respect, um, really, that they deserve and start to access resources that we may have not um, with, um, with a different view. So we're going to be talking about how working with kids this way or working with just people in this way is really cathartic for the person we're working with, but is also really cathartic for us as highly sensitive people, partly because when we work with people this way, and these are going to be my words, not Eliza's, we're not taking on the responsibility of fixing or trying to heal them. Instead, we're working with them and their innate abilities, and we are holding space for them to have a process um, that allows them to regulate their systems. And I think that this whole subject moves into things I've talked about um, around holding space. And I think I mentioned in the last podcast, the work of Heather Plett and, and a lot of, she has writes such amazing information and teaches about holding space and really what we're part of the, you know, what we're doing around holding space is about self-regulation, regulation of the nervous system, um, and managing our own emotional triggers. I think that's, I think that's kind of where I want to stop with this introduction, but, um, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I think it's going to be, I mean, it was a great conversation to have. So let me introduce Eliza. Eliza is a certified aware parenting instructor, infant development movement educator, body mind centering practitioner, and trained Feldenkrais 
practitioner. Eliza respects babies as whole people who enter the world knowing how to communicate, learn, and self-heal within relationship. Her conscious baby practice employs unique approaches to non-cry-it-out sleep, baby-led, I-can-do-it-myself, milestone development, and healing birth trauma, as well as attunement to nonverbal cues and crying. Eliza's life-changing perspectives and respectful solutions toward common parenting questions transcend typical parenting advice. She's from North Carolina, lives in Austin, Texas, and works online with families all over the world. And before I forget, Eliza has given all of us listeners a fantastic, uh, fantastic gift. It's about sleep, but the process that she describes is the same as what we might get, um, uh, so, sorry, the, the framework what that she describes is about sleep, but the process is the same that we might um, get to either help babies and toddlers process feelings or uh, and experiences and tools for highly sensitive children. So it's a great resource for highly sensitive children and for those of you looking for sleep with your infants and toddlers, and I'll put that link in the show notes. So without further ado, here's this conversation with Eliza. So uh, tell me a little bit about what you do over at ConsciousBaby.com, like all of the areas you encompass and and your focus. Yeah, so I'm focused on sleep. So when you look at my material, it looks like I'm a sleep consultant. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do a lot of sleep, and it's all baby-led, baby-guided, non-sleep training, non-cry it out, all based on innate abilities. But my take on sleep is that it's actually related to everything else. So it's related to emotional development. It's related to any stresses going on. It's related to the birth story often in history. It's, It's also related to motor development. So there's all these pieces that go into it because like if if you've ever had a night of sleep where you wake up in the middle of the night thinking about something that's been bothering you and for some crazy reason it's like a million times bigger in the middle of the night (laughs) yes (laughs) like so I mean that just tells us a lot so there's there's so much about how we're able to relax So for babies and toddlers, um, how they're able to relax, to regulate what's preventing them from relaxing, how safe and okay they feel in the world. And that just is related to every aspect of who we are. So um, um, so I work with uh, ages zero through, or well, expectant parents through around age two and a half ish. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of focused there, but. Mm Yeah, so the main theme is sleep, but really it's conscious baby and it's it's really recognizing the consciousness or the the innate abilities and and then there's different pieces of that. So the birth story processing, the baby led motor development, which is a little different. So toddler behaviors. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I love what you just said about sleep because it actually assumes that the baby is a person. <laughs> Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. With like a system of its own and its own 
you know, worries and thoughts. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting the way that we look at babies. I think that, um, you know, our culture kind of teaches us that. And I don't think I started looking at babies very differently and started until I started reading them psychically. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized, um, like even in utero, reading a baby psychically, Mm -hmm. oh, they've got plans and they've got karma Mm -hmm. and they have got stuff they want to do. And then, you know, doing little energy checks for my friend's babies, um, Mm -hmm. um, usually and and, uh, clients, kids and seeing like, oh, they have a whole, they have so much going on and beneath the surface. Yeah. Yeah. That this is why my practice is named conscious baby and not conscious parenting. It's totally also about the parents because you can't have a baby without parents. But my perspective is completely all about your baby as a person and and also that wholeness. There's something about this work um, that I do, which we'll get into, but that's that's really about maintaining all that wholeness that they come in with, which I feel like sometimes it's talked about, but as a culture, we don't really get emotions and birth processing and like babies don't have enough credit. And so it's, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's keeping all of that intact. And that's what I, that's my thing about innate abilities. Mm, Okay. And we're going to talk about that in just a second, but um, something that I found like just um, really exciting on your website was something that you do called aware parenting. So can you talk about aware parenting? Because this sounds fabulous Um, and particularly oriented toward, you know, aware, highly sensitive parents. Yes, yes. So this is the work of Dr. Aletha Salter, a woman. (laughs) Yay, of course. (laughs) (laughs) It's really based on looking for underlying needs. So there's recognizing that there's always an underlying need behind challenges and behaviors. Um, And then also it's a very humane um, way of bringing children up. It's all about communication. A big part of it is recognizing that babies Um, how babies process stress and big feelings and their experiences. Um, So for toddlers, which is an easy doorway in for a lot of people, toddlers, everyone knows about toddler tantrums. So it's, Mm -hmm. what is that really about? What's underneath it? How can you support it, respond to it? If we back up from there for babies, Um, kind of the equivalent is what is crying beyond needs about, like beyond immediate needs like hunger, et cetera. Mm. And then if you go forward older to older kids, it's about um, discipline, which I put in air quotes, but discipline Mm. without punishments and rewards. So Mm. it's a very two-way approach. It's very, the child is a person and I'm not going to power over um, and what I think is cool too is when, when we can really, when we really know about and bring out babies these these abilities for communication and processing experiences, they end up really innately compassionate 
without us having to teach it. Um, emotional mm -hmm. intelligence without us having to teach it. It's really striking. Okay, so t just dive right in. Talk about, so, you know, you talk about how um, on your website, the babies are born with innate abilities to help them process their feelings and experiences. So tell us about these. This sounds fascinating. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is like one of my favorite things ever. Awesome. <laughs> so babies are born with lots of innate abilities. Um, the the challenge is that a lot of common parenting practices tend to override these. Mm -hmm. So when we override it, it can create unintended outcomes. So I'm really about looking at, are we doing what we think we're doing mm. with our children? So these innate abilities, for instance, communication, um, that crying that babies do, if um, if you've ever experienced your baby crying, mm -hmm. if you don't know why, so beyond needs, mm -hmm. um, that's communication, and there's there's a reason. It's not it's not that we're always going to know why, but there's a whole other realm to this crying that's not generally recognized in society. So, mm -hmm. so it's about stress release. It's an innate healing mechanism. Um, and let me clarify right now that this is not cried out. This is crying in arms, we call it. Mm -hmm. So this ability for communication, it's really strong. And once you know how to recognize the crying and other signals like um, when they're processing their birth experience that they might show through movement or emotional mm -hmm. release. Um, so it's innate ability for com two-way communication. It's the ability to process big feelings and their experiences. And that's something also that some people feel that babies' brains are not mature enough or not capable of processing big feelings. Mm -hmm. But we really find that that's not at all true, that actually it's usually the grown-ups who are not comfortable with it. <laughs> Well, and it makes me wonder then, you know, because I think part of what gets adults into trouble is the story. You know, we don't let the emotion process because of all the story around it. Um, and I wonder if babies would be uh, not quite have all of that yet. Yeah. Not that they're not smart or capable, but that maybe their, their mental process isn't hindering them yet. I, I don't know. It's, I'm just curious. Uh, yes. So I would say there's a couple things. For grown-ups, for grown-ups, we, you, most of us were not raised in this, this aware parenting way, um, where the thing about the crying in arms and supporting that, which we can talk more about what it actually looks like, but um, it, it, what it, part of what it does is keep, it keeps the baby or the child connected to what's happening in the moment. Mm. Um, I mean, there's processing of past experiences big time, but there's also processing of what's happening in the moment. Mm -hmm. That really, I feel, I per, this is me personally, I feel that, that that keeps the brain whole in a different way. Whereas for most of us grownups who weren't raised that way, it's not that we can't process stuff, but... Mm -hmm often 
what comes up for us is long time separated from whatever the initial stress or trauma Mm -hmm. right right we're not processing it in the moment so it looks different and there's more layers and then of course there's story because it's like whatever doesn't get processed especially for hsps Mm -hmm. we it has to go somewhere absolutely it's taking up you know you know, psyche, it's taking up psychic energy within us because it's not gone. Yeah. So it's like some part of us, children or adults, is going to keep working on that somehow. Mm -hmm. Right. So it becomes kind of a different thing Mm -hmm. with adults. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so this, this, this thing about innate ability to process their feelings and experiences in relationship, I'll add, Mm -hmm. is important for all babies and children, but I would say this is really key for HSP children mm-hmm. because highly sensitive babies can cry more mm-hmm. than other babies. Toddlers, um, they're, they just take, some of them take in so much information and that turns into all kinds of different things, mm-hmm. um, whether it's holding back or being hyper or tantrums, or that extended crying. So mm-hmm. when you really see this process and know how to support it, it's like, I, I won't say it's easy, especially highly sensitive babies are going to like, they, they need to process, but it's mm-hmm. really, it's really kind of like for us who are highly sensitive and we need to process everything and it goes through our emotions what does that process look like raw? Like when a baby comes out with their, all their innate wisdom, mm-hmm. what does it really look like? And it's quite astounding, I think. Yeah. Well, and two things, um, you know, spoke to me there. One is that it see, you know, I think I kind of talked about this in the, the last podcast with Suki Baxter, but the adults then have to, the parents really have to be comfortable with emotion, with emoting, because I think part of what what happens in um, a lot of traditional parenting methods is that the parents become uncomfortable and believe that the, you know, then want the child to be doing something different to be more comfortable, you know, so that, so that they can be more comfortable. And, and I, I know that our capacity for emotion is only as great as, you know, we can handle our own oftentimes, oftentimes. And then the other thing is that I've so seen that with my son and Mm. I have, I think my son is highly sensitive. Mm. Um, It's kind you know, it's kind of hard to tell. Anytime we have situations that are a lot of transition. So lots of travel, right? Things that I talk about, highly sensitive people having a hard time with lots of travel, you know, transition. He just had a transition to a new school, transition where family or friends are coming in and out of town. And then anything that's just a day of stimulation, when he was a baby, he would cry more and have a lot more difficult time going to sleep. Yeah. Um, I remember, and, and this is a, a couple things happening, but I, the first time that my husband's parents watched him so that we could have go out and have our first date. 
right? Mm -hmm. And I think he was three or four months old, something like that. Not very old. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in in the hours that we were gone, he should have taken a good long nap, like a two hour nap and then gone to bed. Mm -hmm. Well, my father-in-law decided to watch TV the whole time, which understandable, but too much stimulation for an infant, right? So the infant, you know, and, and grandmother didn't move him into a different room. So infant didn't sleep (laughs) the entire, the entire, right. Right. Not surprising. Right. (laughs) And, and, and then when we got home and this is again, the traditional parenting styles, they're like, well, we kept him up. So he'll sleep really well tonight. And I'm, I never being like, fuck, that is not how this works. <laughs> and, and it wasn't, he had such a hard time going to sleep. And then every time he woke up, he woke up more often and with yeah. intense periods of crying. And I, I would like, I, I knew that it was just overstimulation. I knew yeah. he was overtired. He was overstimulated. Um, and, and so then I dealt with it like that, but yeah. And then, and then to, still too, as a toddler, he'll exhibit, he'll be more grouchy and more prone to, um, tantrums and, and things like that when he's having, undergoing lots of change, lots of stimulation. Yeah. Let's talk about, um, that piece of stimulation. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So I think this tells us, uh, like, see, here's the sleep connection tells us so much about, what what regulating looks like we tend to yep. think that it we tend to think it's pretty we tend to think self-regulation <laughs> <laughs> we tend to think it looks like calm and and you're not crying and like everything's okay and but <laughs> right this innate process that we see for for this this natural self-regulating and processing processing process is actually kind of messy sometimes and kind of chaotic, um, but in order to reach the calm at the other side. So what often happens with overstimulation, um, and it's the timeline's a little bit different depending on the baby, but uh-huh. at some point there's usually a need to cry. So there's crying that comes up. Um, again, connected to sleep often because when we're tired, all of us are more vulnerable. So for babies, being tired is a more vulnerable time. So all the feelings bubble up. So, uh-huh. so the crying tends to happen. And then um, although so, some sensitive babies actually wait, they hold it in for a little bit. And then the next day it comes out. Um, but mm-hmm. regardless, whenever it comes out, um, it, it just really says a lot for, for what, what, what the underlying need looks like. So we take in the stimulation or the mm-hmm. baby takes in the stimulation, they need to let it out somehow. Mm-hmm. And the traditional response would be around, cry- around crying, parents are often taught Number one, you should always find out, figure out why your baby's crying. Number mm-hmm. two, you should always make the crying stop. Mm-hmm. Um, that's impossible. <laughs> 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 so everyone knows. 
Um, yes. I mean, yes, we want to be responsive. Absolutely. But we're not always going to know why. And some of the reasons why are not recognized. So, mm-hmm. um, so traditionally parents will often see, I mean, that's a lot of pressure. Like mm-hmm. so parents will often see, well, there's only two options. Either we ignore the crying and do the cried out and separate from the crying, or we distract and we make the crying stop somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, pacifier, bounce, even nursing for comfort. Not hunger at nursing is awesome, but um, and let me also say here, if if this is anyone listening, it's like just <clears throat> this is not judgment, but information. A new way. It's pretty insightful, but when when you only see those two options and you want to maintain connection and you don't know what else to do then it the you, the root is usually to do something to stop the crying so what we end up with is the baby with overstimulation what they're naturally trying to do by crying is let off some steam mm-hmm. with us in relation in arms and then if we try and stop that process which is the norm um and the norm expected for what self-regulation looks like is calm and <laughs> not crying mm-hmm. and what we end up with is the baby who might calm down might have the appearance of calm but really those feelings are all still underneath mm. so it never really fully gets processed and then it might turn into sleep difficulties that night or it might turn into um, something going on the next day or it might just stay inside and turn into like build up into toddler more toddler explosions or maybe even your 10 year old or your teenager it's um there's lots of different ways. And this is not to say that it looks the exact same for every child in every situation, but mm-hmm. I just think it says a lot. Oh, well, let me say the other side of this. So, and let me clarify. So what crying in arms actually looks like is when the cry comes up, whether it's from overstimulation or whatever, um, whatever it is, what we do with aware parenting and, and this crying in arms process is always meet needs. So if it's hunger, absolutely meet that need, etc. cetera. Um, but if there's crying still, to just hold and really hold space, be present, allow the feelings to bubble up and just listen, which is so simple in concept, not always as easy to do, but mm-hmm. listen, listening and really allow the baby to get it out. And typically there's a cycle and this is where the innate ability comes in. It takes some bravery to try this, but as long as you don't feel like there's a medical concern, mm-hmm. you'll see the cycle where the baby or the toddler, um, you can imagine tantrums even, it's kind mm-hmm. of similar. The baby escalates, gets to, or can sometimes get to what parents feel like is hysterical crying um, if you go through that point, because that's usually the very exact deep feelings that are trying to come out. Mm-hmm. On the other side of that, they actually come down again on the other side. And then they reach a really 
incredibly beautiful, serene, peaceful state where they're very connected. They tend to make eye contact. They often sleep better or they stay awake, but very serene and, um, and interactive. Mm-hmm. And again, like this process looks different depending on some different factors, but that's kind of the basis. I can see, that, I remember so clearly with my son and I still see it. Um, but I remember about at about four months, he had to have some vaccines, mm-hmm. um, which was incredibly overstimulating. You know, we had to go, drive to the pediatricians, you know, we're at this new place. He, you know, gets the vaccines, which, you know, advertising. I think to to babies often, yeah. and you know don't make them feel particularly great. Yeah. And I just kind of knew he was just going to be grumpy, you know. And so I just yeah. kind of prepared myself for that. And there was a lot. We did a lot of crying in arms that day, mm-hmm. where he just didn't want to be put down. He just yeah. wanted to process his feelings, and he would. He would go through these cycles, yeah, of like almost hysterical, or you know. His, crying and then it would gradually let up yeah and he would have this little bit of like you know very present and kind of serene yes and then he we'd interact a little bit more and then he'd often go to sleep and then it would start again and he just would kind of do that a few times over the the couple days yeah and then he was fine (laughs) he was (laughs) himself again which is great and it reminds me of what Suki was talking about um, and we've had more conversations about this um, since the podcast but with her horses how when they have those releases when they actually have releases of their trauma they're more present they're actually then engaging because they're not stuck in an emotion or a trauma pattern or they're not just following directions they're actually relating to you yeah from authenticity I think also in this perspective, like with the wear parenting, we're also, it's very much a process of, again, the baby as a person, the child as a person. So I feel like there are some parenting practices or approaches that teach something kind of similar, but it's, it's a little bit with a different tone behind it it's a little more it can be a little more whatever you do I'm going to mirror back to you um so but but with a different intention like more with the teaching this is what you look like when you are angry or something Mm. like that Um, which babies they can feel the difference man children (laughs) are very sensitive about that so this is really literally like if as a grown up, if you have a friend who's having a hard day, hard time, what would you do? Would you listen? Or are you, what would you want? Would you want someone to listen? And it's really treating babies and toddlers with that same re- real authenticity, um, respect. Yeah. Treating them with respect. I mean, I think <clears throat> one of the places that I've been tempted to go wrong because it can seem really f- like kind of bizarre and funny in the moment but you know where I think parents go wrong is I'm sure you've heard of the theory it's not about the sandwich Mm. have you heard about this or maybe not this this is what 
this is what my therapist calls it. So the idea is that your toddler comes home from a day at school or a day at daycare or whatever, or a day being with you, and um, you cut their sandwich in the way that they always like it cut, and they throw a conniption fit. Right. Yeah, we call it the broken cookie phenomenon. Okay, the broken cookie phenomenon. Yeah. Okay. So I've heard it called this. It's not about the sandwich. Yeah. And and you know, the idea being that they have an emotional project that they need to work on. They have feelings that are stuck inside about something. Something overstimulation, whatever. Things yeah. have happened in their day that they weren't able to process. And the the sandwich or the cookie is the the place where they can safely in their home work on those emotions or process those feelings and that that understanding that theory has helped me so much because yeah. it's tempting to be crying about a sandwich but they're not crying about a sandwich right um you know it's like when you're you know, it's like when you're building up resentment with a spouse or something, and then they leave their towel on the floor and you just blow up about everything. It's not about the towel. Right. Right. It's about something much deeper. It's a pretext for right. toddlers. The broken cookie is the pretext for the doorway. And that's, um, and I would say even it can go back as far as birth. O often, Often there's a lot of processing about the birth experience to be done. Um, anything from there on, or even before that process on, can come out during these pretexts. So um, this is new information for a lot of parents. A lot, most parents don't know this about the baby's extended crying. So if they didn't know that about the baby's extended crying, the baby didn't have a chance to get it out then, then it's it, it's all in there waiting to come out. So when it's a broken cookie, um, you have a mm -hmm. pretext. And so, yeah, it's not just about the cookie. I mean, it's not about the cookie, it's about all that other stuff. <laughs> so right. broken cookies are your friend. Yes, <laughs> they are. Yeah, I have found them. Yeah, I found them to be so I, I talked about them last podcast um, with Suki, but I have found them to be kind of incredible to watch because there's part of me that I mean, I, I try to work with my emotions and let them be free. But yeah. there's something that's so beautiful watching a child with no inhibitions, yeah. just getting their feelings out. You know, I mean, my therapist says to me all the time, she's like, well, maybe, maybe you just need a tantrum. Sometimes adults <laughs> need tantrums, but we don't often allow ourselves to, right? <laughs> but there's something so cathartic about watching someone um, you know, regulate their nervous system through getting it revved up, getting all those feelings out and having it move back down through a natural calm state. Yeah. And that relates to the biological stress response. Right. That, like the physiological effects of when we get, when our emotions get stimulated or we feel fear. Um, and the thing is for a baby who say is processing a stressful birth experience, there's actually, there actually can be a feeling of fear there. And that fear is still real mm. until it's been processed. And mm -hmm. so if the fear is real, then there can also be the associated biological, physiological response of getting very active or the toddler. Mm -hmm. Okay. We've got to talk about this. So someone <laughs> actually brought this up to me. I can't even remember who it was, but um, 
but had me go through the birth experience with mm. my infant. And I was like, I was like, this sounds oh, awesome. super weird, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I don't know why I say that coming from me, but I was like, really? That, that we just kind of forgot it, but no, we don't, we as adults. So tell me, tell, let's talk about this. You know, yeah. how, what kind of impacts can this have? Like, and, and what do we need to help us? This is, this is, this is so juicy. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> there's, there's many, many layers. One thing that I find pretty common across the board, um, regardless of how the birth happened, vaginal C-section, et cetera, et cetera, is that a lot of babies sooner or later will push an arch, um, it's like that urge to be born is still running in their nervous system. So mm. that takes us into move, movement integration. Um, that's one aspect. Another one is just the emotional part of it because sometimes situations around birth can happen faster than everyone can integrate. Or um, if an intervention was needed or used, then sometimes the baby doesn't have the information to understand what happened. And here's where I think the cultural assumption is that babies don't remember, they don't know any difference. Mm -hmm. Well, actually they do. <laughs> um, and there's different kinds of memory. So, so there's the emotional aspect. Um, there's also what we call inference. So this work, let me say some, comes from everything I do. So the, the infant developmental movement education and the arching and then the aware parenting and the emotions. And then there's also um, birth, birth psychology. Um, so mm -hmm. this, some of this comes from the birth psychology field, but there's, it's what we call imprints. So there are times around conception, pregnancy, birth, early experiences that can actually imprint our demeanor, habits, how we learn to interact with the world, how we experience transitions is a biggie. So for instance, one example is sometimes if a, if a baby needed to be um, if a baby was brought out of the womb before the baby was ready. This is regardless of what kept people safe and alive. This mm -hmm. is this is literally from the baby's perspective. So mm -hmm. if the baby had to come out before they were ready or had an intervention like a vacuum or forceps or something, um, it this varies, but it can can become bossiness. Um, or demand what feels like demanding needing everything to be right it's mm -hmm. like or just in general not even that specific example but if there's a feeling if there's a toddler kind of like nothing's quite right and you try to keep fixing the situation can actually link back to something around birth just there's something hanging you can't it's that feeling you can't put your finger on it something's not right um, mm -hmm. or transitions sometimes so kind of the baby's biological expectation coming out of 
mama, the womb, is to then reunite with mama, um, have dad around, etc. Sometimes with our typical hospital process or if there was a challenge, an issue, mm-hmm. if the baby's taken away before meeting mom on the outside, that loop, that journey from the inside to the outside is that there's a detour. Mm-hmm. So there's something about the transition. So sometimes we see that mirrored in um, a baby's, tra- a, ch- a toddler's tr- transitioning between activities or a C-section baby sometimes um, might have a challenge, challenge transitioning. S- some of these, some of these aspects look like that's just normal toddler behavior. Mm-hmm. And some of them are, but sometimes there's an edge to it, or there are some strange fears, or it's kind mm-hmm. of intense. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like it's a little more intense than mm-hmm. typical, some, things like that. That's when we look backwards to the birth experience. Mm. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. And that's so fascinating. in this, in this sort of theory is the, what's the assumption is, is the assumption are genetically hired wired to kind of know what to expect from labor and birth and and then when that's not met or can you explain a little bit more about the the theory underlying um you know the underlying assumption so from my understanding it's around what a baby is innately expecting in a sense um and there's there are things that trigger there's reflexes that trigger the extension to come out of the womb but right um and everyone talks about the mom pushing but there's also a pushing involved from the baby that's right related to this reflex and pushing out so so there's kind of a there's an innate understanding that that baby, yeah, how to say this, the babies are looking for being part of the process. Mm, um, mm-hmm. It's that innate wisdom, like they're, they're innately, it's almost like, how, how would they not expect to be part of the process together with the mom? Um, right. Like if you expect, if you just imagine yourself growing as a embryo to a baby it's like you have a sense of self in a certain way here's another place where a lot of people are like babies don't have a sense of self but mm-hmm. you have this you have this the consciousness of yourselves you have your mm-hmm. purpose etc mm-hmm. um so of course you're part of the process mm-hmm um, and when that gets interrupted for whatever reason, it's not that we're, it's not that things need to be perfect. It's that babies will innately try to understand it and process it. Mm, right. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, like with my, the birth of my first son, he, he was two weeks late and things were looking a little dangerous. And so I did this natural induction, which I think 
of the reason it was so prolonged because you know he should have given that signal to like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know let's let's do this thing and um and i did have i mean i i was able to birth him vaginally um but i had to push him out rather quickly otherwise he'd Mm -hmm. he'd been in there for too long with some dangerous stuff so and it's interesting i i don't find it this particularly intense right now in his behavior so i'm not sure if these are linked but Mm -hmm. he's he's a pretty bossy um you know two and a half year old and it's really interesting he it's, it's he's very bossy with me and he um he has a lot of things where he goes first mm-hmm. now where he says my turn first one of the big things is that i can't go up or down stairs without him going up or down the whole staircase first and then mm-hmm. mommy can go mm-hmm. and so that i as you were talking about the relationship with that i was like well that's kind of interesting yeah. whether or not it relates i'm not sure but um, just kind of find that, um, yeah, really yeah. interesting. And that's where it, there are some things like, yes, yes, toddlers can be quote bossy, mm-hmm. but it's when like, when you notice it and you're like, hmm, like, this mm-hmm. kind of happens a lot. And then you look back and, and sometimes the thing is you think it's just typical toddler behavior, but the thing is that every family will have a different quote, typical that relates back to their birth story so Mm -hmm. so okay so what do we do then so how do we as parents how do we you know we can maybe we see the relation is there something that we then do to help them with this so it it looks different at different ages Mm. with babies the younger the baby the more they will tend to just cry when they need to Mm -hmm. um so common ways that babies are looking to process their birth experience is the pushing and arching and then um, just the, that extended crying. And this is in the category of you don't know why your baby's crying um, and you've met all the needs and they're still crying. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that just works it out mm-hmm. um, in itself. When, when it doesn't, as toddlers, there's a lot of play we can do around birth that's that's um this is also where in some situations with some toddlers often it's just mind-blowing the level of awareness that we start seeing but Mm -hmm. um, of their experience but there's things like telling talking through the birth story um, giving the information hey this is why you had to be we were induced, um, how everyone felt about it, how mom felt about it, how the baby may have felt about it. Was it scary? Did it feel like we wanted to force you before you were ready? Mm-hmm. There's, um, things like peekaboo is actually relates to a birth experience. It's a very common game that babies love, but mm-hmm. um, peekaboo or in, inside outside games so there's different kind of birth related games but um yeah so there's there's creative ways through storytelling looking at photos play and this is also where for highly sensitive children and parents because sometimes it's the parent who needs to process something also yeah um where this can just help move those experiences through through our 
through our sensitive brain system. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I had, I can't, it might've been a lactation consultant that I had who suggested that I start talking to Sloan about the birth, mm. this, the, about the birth story that we had and just kind of watching how he reacted. So mm-hmm. uh, every day, I don't remember how many days I did it, but I would just kind of tell him the birth story and tell him about where I got scared or sad and tell him, you know, you know, I offer him space to communicate back to me in whatever way and space for whatever movement that he wanted. And I don't know if it helped or not, but you know, it kind of felt cathartic um, to just have to be in relationship with him about that. Yes. That's beautiful. Yeah. I find that there, there's often different layers Um, You know how we grow up some, and then we look back on an experience and we're like, oh, that's what that was about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) More inside as you grow up, same thing, Uh like a baby might process layers of it. And then later as a toddler, there might be another layer to process and then kind of ongoing, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So then the other thing that I want, so to ask for any of our listeners who aren't parents. So yeah. can, the, can, you, you mentioned that this can stay with us, I'm assuming even through adulthood. So how might we, you know, recognize some of these things today and what can we do now? So I'm going to go back to the general, just feelings in general. Yeah, totally. You were talking a little bit ago about um, parents, the parents' response, or we were talking about parents' response. One thing for grown-ups, and this would be if you're if you're around children and babies at all, mm-hmm. is what is your what is your gut response to a baby crying? Mm. Um, because a lot of people talk about well, in the realm of parenting, a lot of people talk about, but it's instinct, it's instinct to get the baby to stop crying. And what we find is that actually, sometimes what feels like instinct can actually be learned habit. (laughs) It's like, I heard Mm -hmm. someone said it once as, it's a habit that has reached the status of instinct. (laughs) I love, oh my God, I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and that's why we do this work so early because this emotional stuff goes in so early and subconsciously before we can analyze it. Mm. Um, So, and here again, it, it might feel like instinct, but the thing is, every parent with a different reaction might feel like theirs is the instinct. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And this is not to say there isn't instinct. Yes. Like, yes, for a mother hormonal connection. Yes, there's an instinct to respond to a crying baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but within that, what we almost always, if not always find is that the parents, inst- what feels like instinctual response to a baby crying will be very related to how they were handled or how we were handled as babies and children ourselves. Mm-hmm. So if the grown up, so this goes for people who are not parents as well, 
if you are around babies and um, if you as a child if you were if it was kind of friendly like oh don't cry it's okay don't cry like it wasn't aggressive but it was still you still got the message don't cry mm -hmm. that parent or that adult will tend to um not not be super upset about a baby crying but maybe just you know try to do something to stop the crying mm -hmm. if if a parent was nursed comfort nursed always regardless um beyond hunger always um, never allowed to cry or express feelings then they will tend to have the same response to a crying baby well that's not people who are not parents but um or if a if if an adult was raised when they were a kid just with with visible discomfort around emotions or the kind of go to your room and have your feelings and then come back mm -hmm. um, that parent sometimes those parents either are uncomfortable with crying or it becomes a little more intense about um, well about let me say this it can become intense about the baby not crying so that they don't feel the same because for the adult, it wasn't safe to cry or express feelings. So then you want to stop the child from crying. Mm -hmm. Right. So no, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's funny for some reason, when you're talking about this, I mean, I'm not envisioning parents. I'm envisioning people on an airplane, yeah. <laughs> you know, because people on airplanes have such different responses <laughs> to kids being there to cry. Um, you know, sometimes it's just too much for a kid or whatever's happening, you yeah. know, they've been, a, you know, and they cry a lot and yeah. 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 Um, also for grownups, if we look at this process and what I was saying about um, this innate process for regulating and relaxing and processing our feelings and experiences, which we all initially came in with actually can look chaotic and disorganized and crazy yeah until we find the calm on the other side of it mm -hmm. just to recognize that feelings um feelings are a really big driver of how we experience ourselves how we experience the world how we relate to other people patterns of like people pleasing um gosh there's so many patterns emotional mm -hmm. patterns that we can get into so for grown-ups even who are not parents to just kind of reflect and there's a lot of insight you can get from looking back at how how you were raised um any memories that come up or sometimes parents Sometimes grown, uh, adults will say, but I don't remember um, how my parents mm. handled me when I cried. But usually, even if you don't remember specifically, there's usually still a feeling like what, what, what was the feeling of, what was the general tone or acceptance of feelings in your household, mm. in your family? Was it, 
was it okay to cry and you were listened to? Was it not okay to express feelings? Were you not taken seriously? Was it okay only if you were separated? That kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. So if you take those things and literally work backwards from them, like, okay, I came in to this world with probably like sooner or later I would have had some big feelings and big experiences and something to tell and like every every baby has a story to tell we all want to be heard and mm -hmm. taken seriously and um what happened to that innate sense that I came in with mm. was it welcomed was it squashed was it avoided that kind of thing and then mm -hmm. work forward to what does that mean now? Does that, do I tend to avoid, avoid feelings, avoid conversations, um, avoid mm -hmm. a certain family member, or you, you know, you like, you, you know what you can tell the different people and just, I would say to first just get the objective insight, no mm -hmm. judgment, just a, literally objectively, huh, that's what my experience was. I wonder mm -hmm. what, out of curiosity, like, I wonder what that means. Hmm. Yep. All of that. That's fantastic. So basic, yeah. Basic emotional intelligence work. What does that mean? Digging into the whys. Awesome. And we've talked about some of those processes on other podcast episodes. Mm. Um, but there's one last subject I want to cover with you before we um, run out of time. And so we've talked about all of these, you know, aware parenting and basically being really conscious about working with children. So what's the deal with the self-soothing movement then, Ooh. right? We, <laughs> we, we've just been talked about, you know, self-regulation and, and does that tie in with self-soothing? And usually when we talk about self-soothing for people out there who aren't parents, it's, it's like this idea that, that babies need to learn how to soothe themselves. Yeah. Which I doubt they, yeah. Anyway, I'm going to let, I'm going to let you talk about self-soothing. So my, my thing, <laughs> my thing about self-soothing is what I was saying before. Did anyone ever ask the question why the baby needs to self-soothe in the first place? <laughs> because, <laughs> because, and then it just points back to us grown-ups. So if you if you know this information and you you now understand kind of this innate process, why babies cry beyond needs. Um, so here's the thing: crying is often perceived as a problem. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, with this perspective, you start to see that crying is communication, and um, an innate healing process, which means that the crying is a solution. Mm -hmm. It's communication and it's a solution. So mm -hmm. with that perspective that if we don't, if the baby or we don't get the cry out, those feelings just stay inside. Um, so with the crying, when when we when someone when culture society grown-ups adults whatever advice when advice does not understand those underlying reasons about extended crying on top of the fact that culturally we're just not very comfortable with emotions then yes you're going to need to find a way to 
do something about it. Um, if you don't understand that, that extended crying, then yes, it's definitely going to feel like the baby should stop crying because something's wrong. Um, so then we impose the self or the self-soothing gets imposed. Um, the other piece of this also when, when the crying gets hysterical is often makes parents nervous. Um, and that often gets translated as the baby doesn't know how to calm down or the baby is not able to handle big emotions. Mm -hmm. um, so that's when self-soothing, oh, we need to teach the baby how to calm down, how to self-soothe. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing there is that, that unless there's a stressor happening, unless the baby's left alone or big brother is like banging on baby or something <laughs> like that, <laughs> except in those cases, that, that, that intensity is, is typically, um, or, or if there's the baby's hurt or something, that intensity is typically that emotion that is just trying to come out. And so if we mm -hmm. self-soothe over that, um, it just keeps it in. Well, and my understanding is that until kids get quite a bit older, while they have the uh, you know, capacity to self-regulate in relationship, that you know that that means that that's actually a co-regulation happening right they're regulating with us so they're expressing something in relationship to us they need the baby in arms and so they're and so in a way i mean that's really co-regulation so my understanding is that until they're quite a bit older they don't actually have the capacity to self-soothe their brains and nervous systems aren't prepared for something like that and that's why we have to be there to help them co-regulate, to, to be that other person, to be that mirror that their nervous system can kind of bounce off of, um, if, if that makes sense. And, and maybe, yeah. I'm, maybe I'm a little off there, but that is my understanding. And I'm curious what you've, I mean, what I've heard about, you know, strict, you know, kind of strict cry it out methods is that they can could just cause the nervous system to go into freeze basically. It's just kind of a shutting down. Yeah. Shut down. Yeah. Just going to shut down. The co-regulation is very interesting. I would, I would look, I look a little deeper there. Um, mm. For co-regulation, yes, in the sense of relationship, holding space, the loving, listening attention. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, they will, yes, partly they will rec regulate alongside how, especially mom, but and dad, mm -hmm. how mom is doing. Yes, typically the calmer the mom, the calmer the baby. So yes. Mm -hmm. And I would go deeper though and say, no, not in terms of that we need to teach the baby how to calm down. Right, right. Um, not in a teaching, yes. Yeah. And, and I would say that the babies and toddlers do have the ability and um, do have the maturity and ability to regulate. But the thing is, it, in relationship is the key. And that's where, yeah. um, that's where 
the co-regulation perspective can vary a little bit. So for me, mm -hmm. for me, it's, it's yes, together in relationship, but it's not about getting them to stop or calm. It's about holding space for their right process, which might actually get crazier before it gets calmer. Yeah. And that's actually the way that I think about it in my mind is like, mm -hmm. I consider my job as the, you know, the, the parent, or I mean, maybe I would use the term co-regulator to just sit there and be available and be calm. Anyway. I look at it, I look at it very two ways. So sometimes, sometimes <laughs> it's kind of an oxymoron, but sometimes the perspective on co-regulating is actually more one directional in a sense. Oh, okay if this makes sense, mm -hmm. I don't know if I explain my brain right now. Mm -hmm. um, one directional in the sense of I'm bigger and more, my nervous system's bigger and more powerful than yours. So you do your thing and I'm, but I'm going to be the one who manages. Mm, interesting. Um, I look at it as authentically two way mm. um, in tandem. So it's, one person can't do this process without the other in this dyad. But oh, this also, makes so much sense. Okay, yeah. I love the nuance you're bringing here. Yes. yes, yes yeah, yes. it's a nuance, but it, mm -hmm. it's really different to me. Um, it is really different because it even takes the it takes the power. It takes any sort of power out of it. Yes. Any sort of power dynamic that would have yes. been there. Yes. Oh, I like that. That's the thing. I feel like st even though some, even though it's called co-regulation, um, it sounds good. It's like, like everything depends on the intention behind it. It can mm -hmm. power over things. So I just really look at that and tandem. And sometimes the parent is not calm during this process. The thing is, if this is new for parents, it sounds so easy in concept. All you do is hold your baby in arms and let them get their cries out and you listen and, and it's all happily ever after. But, <laughs> but the reality is that for many parents, it is not that easy to just hold space when your baby is crying. So there's often a learning process and a journey for the parent and yes, right. there, there is that co-regulation in the sense of if the parent is re reaches a wall and is hesitant, worried, anxious, the baby's going to feel that and might stop crying because the baby senses that. On the other hand, there's a way as a parent that you, you do get to feel your feelings because that's the authentic two-way two part of this. You get to feel your feelings also in this process, but where is your wall? How far can you go? If you find your wall and you get too anxious and you can't go, then communicating that to the baby, I hear you, but I need to stop right now. And, mm -hmm. and so that's where I feel like it's in tandem. So if a parent is there and, and is able, has done their personal work and is able to hold space, mm -hmm. cool. Um, it's going to get you very far. Um, but a lot of parents, this is very new for, mm -hmm. so they also have a journey. And that's where I always feel like babies are healers in a sense. They just do their own work and it brings us along if 
we listen. So sometimes it's more of a journey in tandem. Um, yeah. And both, yeah. both baby yeah. and parent grow and go forward together. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we need to wrap it up. So um, I lo- always like to leave um, the listeners with what's the, the one thing that you uh, want people to know? Oh, authenticity is really key to me um, in so many different directions. Authenticity, like there are a lot of people who talk about respectful parenting, but it's like depending on where we're coming from in our own emotional upbringing and landscape, even that can have different levels of openness or power dynamic Mm -hmm. so just really authenticity authenticity and radically like really the baby as a person or the toddler in yourself as a person or your own inner child self history as a person Mm -hmm. being comfortable with feelings holding space um that sense of okayness in the world just like authentically if the baby or someone's having feelings, let them have the feelings. Um, And I think a lot of people can be scared of authenticity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's really a powerful thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you so much for being here and having the conversation with me today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to the show. All of the show notes, links, and references can be found at www.sensitivityuncensored.com. If you'd like to read more about high sensitivity or intuition, sign up for my mailing list, book an intuitive reading with me, or learn about my membership or school, please visit my website at www.sensitivityuncensored.com.